Hello and welcome to another episode of Crippled Stomp. And today we have another guest, and that guest will now introduce themselves to all you lovely people. So, guest, please could you introduce yourself? I can. Hi, my name's Steve Sunderland. I'm um, uh, in my final year of a PhD by practice at Salford University. I'm a, a writer and teacher, and I'm currently studying surrealism and the um the way that i'm doing it is by uh, the writing of a novel called the cinema beneath the lake so just to kick us off then uh what would you say is surreally surrealism means to you surrealism to me um well it, it, i've got a fairly standard understanding of it from what i've studied really it, it's um a revolutionary avant-garde movement of the early 20th century. It's probably the most significant avant-garde movement of the 20th century, probably the most influential movement um, from that period of time that, that still has some sort of impact today in the things that we do. It's the study of um, the unconscious, or it's an attempt to engage with the unconscious through the mechanisms of writing, art, um, poetry, and prose. Not not with a view to creating new art, really, but actually with a view to dismantling society <laughs> as we know it and replacing it with something better than the kind of standard view of society we've got today. So, yeah, I don't think people think of it as such, really. They tend to think of it along the lines of, um, an art movement headed by people like Salvador Dali in the popular imagination, but that's quite far from the actual truth of the movement, really. In fact, Dali was booted out of the Surrealists in the 30s, but um, his, his idea of it still persists, but it's not mine. Yeah, there seems to have been a lot of conflict in, in all forms of Surrealist movements why do you think that is um conflicts in insofar as the group itself had a lot of conflicts within yeah, it yeah yeah it came from the fact that most of the yeah most of the um the kind of early members of the surrealist group in paris were very young and i think <laughs> quite a lot of the conflicts came from uh vying for position um the conflicts were were actually with other groups as well uh, before, bef you know, bef before the conflicts within surrealism itself. They they fought with other groups really. In fact, they they arrived out of another group altogether. That uh, quite a few of the, the members of surreal the surrealist movement as it began had previously been in the Dada movement, um, and so there was a kind of attempt to individuate surrealism from that earlier movement and that took the form of quite a lot of bickering and conflict really over ideas so i think it it, it was to do with how young they were and i think it was to do with how how seriously they took what the movement was trying to achieve and, and what they thought at first the movement was trying to achieve was an absolute rejection of bourgeois society um, 
and and once they would they'd achieved that they wanted to replace the kind of society that that they saw as having been responsible for the tragedies of the first world war um with something new and something more uh sympathetic to what they consider to be basic human nature yeah. so yeah um i think i think it's because they took it seriously even yeah. though what you get an impression of from surrealism is it was a, a bunch of daft people uh you know pr provoking society yeah. they actually had quite serious uh, intentions so would you agree that it came from a serious place then because because the caricature of it is like oh it's just a bit of a laugh you know and they're just messing about but you know would you would you agree that it yeah not really i mean it came it did it came from um a rejection of of what had happened uh, during the first world war really so uh you know andre breton is the the the, the person uh, seen as the sort of leader of the group who set it up, and he was um, he was trained as a doctor, so he he was he was in the trenches pretty much in in the First World War. His job was looking after shell shocked uh, veterans of the war, um, and for a certain part of it, his job was to figure out whether or not their shell shock was. Um, a form of simulation to escape from the war and so it was it, like a lot of people in that position they were they were looking for people pretending to be ill so they they didn't have to go back to the the front so you know he, he wasn't alone a number of the other orig originators of the movement were from similar kind of backgrounds and experiences and so they were disgusted really with with what had happened during the first world war and um, the first, like I say, the first kind of wave of rejection came in the form of Dada. And then that was the kind of prankster movement. That was the one that that really kind of rejected uh, standard communication, even set up its own kind of sub language and um, nonsense was its approach. But Breton and his little coterie of followers after a while thought that was something of a cul-de-sac, a bit of a dead end. And because, because of the growth of um, uh, psychology, psychotherapy and the ideas that are coming out through Freud and all of those people, they, they thought there would be a, a, an interesting route out of Dada into something that, that could be more um, coherent in the form of dream life and ways of using the idea of the dream and other other modes of expression to kind of undermine the rational structures of society and um, try to set off in people their own kind of internal revolution to change their way of thinking. That was their hope. <laughs> yeah. whether, it, whether it succeeded, obviously, is up for grabs. But quite a lot of the, the, the ideas and imagery of surrealism sort of persist in everything that we're doing today. So... Yeah. I guess they had some sort of impact. I just don't know whether it was co-opted, really. I was just thinking that a uh, 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 thought that comes to mind is, since this was after the First World War, do you think something similar like that could happen now in terms of a, a post-pandemic kind of 
rebirth of that kind of movement, or do you think that's a romantic idea and that's all it is? Uh, I it's a good question. I, th- I think um, it, I don't think it really. I don't think surrealism really went away. I don't think surrealism was strictly limited by the fact that it had a leader and an official uh, a set of manifestos. I, th- I think obviously that that version of surrealism died in in the nineteen sixties when Breton yeah. died himself. Nineteen sixty six, he died. So. The, the official the the end of the official surrealism w- was that mid sixties period, but I don't think you can really co opt the idea of dreams, yeah. uh, and and claim it for a single movement. So the idea of the irrational and the and the subconscious persists in all kinds of art, really, doesn't it? And um, yeah, it's a, we're approaching like a hundred years by 2024 will be it will be at the the centenary of of surrealism and it strikes me that quite a lot of the underlying circumstances that gave birth to the original surrealism are back in place again aren't they at the moment you've got yeah you know you've got a a worldwide pandemic you've got systemic failures of capitalism um there are wars going on all over the place um a sense of kind of moral bankruptcy and, everywhere you look and it feels like a good time yeah and all you're gonna get is like a, a lockdown films and lockdown stories and this that the other but i'm talking i'm talking like you are of like a political and uh, artistic surrealist awakening really and uh, you know something beyond the conventional lockdown story or the conventional this or that you know the kind of you know the the just turning up everything upside down creatively i think it's a a kind of uh, very fertile ground if you will for that kind of thing to take root really yeah, I, I, I agree. It'd be great if it did, wouldn't it? I think um, yeah. my experience of, you know, of, of looking at surrealism through this kind of study of it academically is um, that there are sort of, there are sort of two sides to it. There's obviously there's the, the art historian um, curatorial role of bringing all the figures that participated in surrealism back into the history those people have been marginalised or excluded from it yeah. on the one hand, which perhaps to some degree or other sort of cordon surrealism offers something that's gone as well. They become yeah. kind of like museum pieces at the same time. Um, but there are, you know, there are still surrealist groups all over the country. And there's, like, there's a big, big one in Leeds, there's a London surrealist group, there, yeah. there's um, there's quite a lot of surrealism in Wales. There's even surrealism um, in Birmingham, apparently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so so it's it's not joined up, I don't think, quite yeah. as much as it, it could be. And what it does exactly, I'm not I'm not a member of any of those those groups. I've seen some of the stuff they do. Yeah. And I like it. I, I wonder to what extent surrealism should look and feel different now than surrealism did then. Yeah. I.e., you know, um, if you're keeping surrealism alive, you have to change its tropes and its images and 
move with the times. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not being critical of, of those groups. I don't really know what they do exactly. But um, I think you, you'd need to be doing something new. And so I think looking around me on Twitter, the sort of poetry movements that are about on Twitter, yeah. I get a, set, a genuine sense of um, not just surrealism, other avant-garde as well, having quite a lively time at the moment being used and explored through for, for all sorts of expression, some of which is, uh, you know, anti-establishment critical and and some of which is perhaps a bit more kind of like introspective. But it feels like it's it's having another kind of moment, just just a little bit. You, you wouldn't think so in the in the mainstream media, I suppose, but it feels like on yeah. the Twitter sphere that I occupy at least, there's a bit more of it going on and, than I expected to find. And um, without like boasting or anything like that, this our voices are going to go global. So is there any message we should give to the global audience in terms of keeping, keeping the surrealism alive, really? Um, I don't know about message so much. What I would say is um, it, surrealism always, it's one of its major claims was, and one of its insistent notes was in the early kind of manifestation of it was that poetry should be made by all. Um, and uh, the idea of a kind of an artist figure who, uh, you know, wages war on his or her own against things is is a bit meaningless. Art itself needs to be collapsed, and everybody should be expressing themselves. Everybody has dreams. Everybody um, can summon the unconscious if they choose to. Um, so, in terms of a kind of statement, I guess you know, try to insist on the idea that people believe in. Um, accessing their own unconscious is a useful thing to do that might lead to something productive for them, that might lead them to challenge the routines of their life or, or look at them from an unusual angle again. But, yeah. um, I, you know, it, it's hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. Whether yeah. that would succeed for people. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I don't think there's enough um, time spent on dream life. And that's, I think, what the surrealists were trying to champion, really. So would you say you dream a lot, actually dream? Um, I, I, do, I do dream quite a lot. I've, 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 during this lockdown, I've, I've been keeping a dream diary, actually, and uh, with a view to perhaps integrating some of it into the, into the fiction I've been writing, I've yeah. I've I've got like sixty dreams in a dream diary at the minute. Yeah. Over from over this year, just gone. Um, so that maybe gives you a proportion of the time that I dream because I'm I'm pretty sure that I was trying most of the time to write down anything I could remember. But I think yeah. we, we dream all the time, don't we? Yeah, it's because you always remember them. Yeah, because in my limited research for for this conversation. Uh, and over over the years, dreams play a big part in surrealism and the unconscious and and that kind of thing. And like uh, the idea of people writing 
consciously being aware that they're going to write their dreams down once they wake up. I, I'm wondering, my, my absurdist mind is going to the idea of whether that affects your actual dream, you know? Whether because you're consciously aware... Well, that's true, isn't it? ...that you're going to write them. Yeah, whether exactly. You know? It's true. It's very it's very difficult to know. I mean, the, 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 the trying to catch, catch a dream um, as it's still happening and turn it into something on paper yeah. obviously loses some of that essence doesn't it because you you're moving from one mode into another and you're it's an active recall anyway but you've got to do it when you're really close up to it i think as well you can't yeah. do that later in the day no it's got to be done at the time that you're coming out of sleep so the time it's most productive to do it is just as you're coming away yeah in fact it's breton himself talks about um, how he first came across surrealism through his own half awake, half asleep um, mind, presenting him with a with a sentence, and um, that that's where he began um, yeah. to, to write. And it was just some, you know, detached image that, that he then meant. He, he kind of tried to build from there. And I'm going, um, I'm going off three. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. Go for it. Going off dreams, I was just going to say, that leads me on to thinking about David Lynch and uh, mm -hmm. whether you think he's a surrealist filmmaker or not. It's interesting that, um, yeah, I do. I, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm I'm aware that that's that's uh, he's not considered to be so by certain uh, historians and critics from within the kind yeah. of surrealist um, academy or the, the sort of academic yeah. notion of surrealism. Yeah. Um, he's seen as a bit of um, uh, what would be the right word for it? He, he, someone who occupies it briefly mm. uses it and moves on and isn't a pure surrealist um yeah but I'm not what sure do you I agree think with that. i think some of the, some of the I, I don't think i don't agree with it i think that I, my view is that he is someone who's profoundly influenced by surrealism and well, you can see that if you just look at his favourite films or the films that he recommends you. Yeah. So, you know, aside from all the Hollywood films of the 1940s and 50s that he's obsessed by, he was very much driven by all those early surrealist films. And um, my feeling is that much as his films look and feel like they belong inside of Hollywood to some degree or another, what he does um, with the kind of building blocks of Hollywood language, things that, when I say Hollywood language, I mean kind of elements of genre, elements of um, story scenario that crop up in, in all narrative structures, he uses in um, a deliberately surrealist, um, non sequitur way, and he will move from one world into another with that announcement and he doesn't have any genuine sense of closure 
and it's his dream wife that urges him to create in the first place. Quite famously, obviously, in, in Twin Peaks, he built the entirety of Twin Peaks around a dream that he had. Um, so I think he's a surrealist. I think I think it's I think he's a famous surrealist, and I think that's the problem um, yeah. for surrealism. Surrealism is very, very, very vehemently anti-commercial, yeah. and <laughs> it comes partly from Breton's own sort of uh, fierce protect protectiveness about the idea of surrealism yeah. as something that you live. It's not a it's not a form. It's not a style. It's it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. Yeah, um, and you have to be in it entirely, and so I think that's why he gets criticised. But um, I don't fully subscribe to that attitude, and I yeah. don't. I I really do come away from David Lynch feeling like I've been in somebody else's slightly deranged dream. Absolutely, so, so do I. Unless, yeah, unless, unless that that doesn't add up to surrealism. I'm not sure. I mean, it's, there's more to it than that, no doubt. But yeah. I don't see his, I don't see his films as um, maintaining the status quo, for instance. No. And, and that's, I think, you know, the revolutionary aspects of surrealism. I think there's plenty that you could describe as uh, insurrectionary or revolutionary about, about David Lynch. Yeah. Well, especially when he talks about catching fish and all that kind of thing and, mm-hmm. you know ch- chasing the dream and like you know catching ideas and all this like like kind of mystical stuff as well you know it's kind of good absolutely yeah and he's trying he transcendental meditation he's yeah. trying to use the disciplined a disciplined approach to the mind to capture the mind when it's able to evade the the rule the conscious rules that have um stifled it so that's why that's why he talks about catching fish doesn't he and he, talk, he also talks about ideas sort of coming to him in the middle of you know a certain time of the day where things are still and you know this idea he describes an idea as coming in yeah. And um, like it's got its own volition. And I, I think that's the sign of somebody who believes in that kind of the phenomenology of surrealism, that, yeah. it, that it's sort of, um, it, it's it's emergent from things beyond what we're in control of. Yeah. It seems to be like that all the time to me. So, yeah, yeah. I, yeah it's a long answer to a short question. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it is what it is. And one of the other ones that I wanted to speak to you about was Charlie Kaufman. Because as you, as you know, like, yeah. I love Charlie Kaufman as well. So uh, would you say he's a surrealist? Um, I, I certainly have thought about him in the past as someone that I'd, I'd, I'd certainly want to associate with surrealism and having been influenced by it. Um, I think his most recent film probably is almost the nearest I can think of to to him engaging with the sort of the darker end of surrealism. Yeah. Um, Kind of nightmarish uh, pursuit of an idea 
a theme or an emotion into a set of images that you, you could very easily associate with surrealism. I think at times with him, I, I, I find him uh, playing with other notions than, than surrealism, really. Um, but definitely, definitely, yeah, definitely influenced by it. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not that interested in the label surrealism just for its own sake either. No, no. But I certainly think it's been hugely influenced by it. Yeah. I think surrealism itself was a, a little bit confined by the manifestos and those manifestos that were written in the 1920s. They were just provisional documents, really. They were, they were designed to draw people in. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, they're the things that um, are used as the measuring stick of surrealism. Yeah. But like I said at the beginning, I think surrealism's bigger than the sum of its historical parts. Yeah. And so, yeah, you could, you could argue that he is a surrealist. Is there anything that you would like to ask me? Because I'm aware, aware that this may be sounding like an interview to you, but, it's, you know, you can ask me anything if you like. I don't, I don't want you to feel like you're on the spot, you know? No, I'm not at all on the spot. No, no, I, no I'm just trying to be of use, really. Um, oh, yeah, you don't mean I don't know who, who you aim, who are you aiming your programs at? Who, who are you wanting to speak to, particularly? To, to, uh, to anybody that's interested or interesting, you know? And, and to yeah. just open people's minds to, to yeah. as many people as I possibly can. You know, and yeah. and not be kind of narrow focused. Be be not yeah. be commercial, but be as far and as wide reaching as I possibly can, and make some people yeah. Yeah. who won't know about some of the some of the themes or th some of the yeah. things, make them aware of stuff that they don't know about, and make myself yeah. aware of stuff. Minute, loads of stuff I don't know anything about, you know. So yeah, it's just about enriching everybody's life, really, and uh, that's yeah. it essentially. And uh, one of the, the questions that comes to mind, because obviously I've known you for a good number of years now, one of the the, the uh, things that comes to mind is you started writing this book, right? Uh, for the record, it's uh, Cinema Beneath the Lake, is that right? Yeah. The Cinema Beneath the Lake, yeah. Yeah, I just thought I'd give you a little plug there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, but what I was trying to say is you started writing it before the pandemic. So how has the pandemic changed your writing process? Good question. Um. Well, yeah, the, I, I, I guess I was sort of, um, I was about three quarters of the way through it when the pandemic started to emerge. And um, I was on a time schedule for, for completion, so I just carried on. Um, and because of the nature of what I was doing, which already had in <laughs> it, already had in it, as a, as a sort of an atmosphere or a theme, um, a, a kind of future apocalypse, but it was, it was 
pretty, pretty much predicated on the idea that the world would, um, or mankind would be wiped out by climate disaster. So there is, there's sort of quite a lot of imagery around flood and et cetera, et cetera, in the book. But then obviously the the virus appears and the the virus just I found its way into the book in some places and it found its way into the sense of agitation um in the book in the last in the last sort of 60 pages or so and obviously by now because I haven't you know I'm not I'm not looking for any kind of publication of it at the moment what I am going to do now is look back on the book and all the things that have been generated during lockdown. So I've had the book sort of, I described it yesterday as sort of decomposing a bit out of my consciousness, um, somewhere to becoming an object really. And, um, but the most recent sort of churnings from my subconscious that have been going on have been much more, influenced by what's been going on during the pandemic and I'm, I'm thinking of trying to marry the two together in a sort of juxta in a kind of juxtaposition so that you get a feeling of um a story that's shot through with what's happening now you know, and my consciousness being a bit closer to the to the forefront of it yeah so um so yeah i mean it, it, it's it's a bit eerie to look back at it <laughs> to be honest yeah um and it, 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 like you said at some point in the past, it, it, it like like lots of documents are going to be for future audiences. It'll have that kind of uncanny vibration of a, a traumatic period of time, yeah, contained within it. You know, to be read in different ways by people with lots of different experiences. Because especially um, with the. Especially with the way you meant to be writing this sort of thing, one of the bits I was reading was when you write a surrealist novel. Apparently, you meant to be doing automatic writing, right? And that, yeah, as far as, far as I know, it's like just so, uh, unconscious writing. But what I'm interested in is mm. how 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 the fuck can you do that when reality is just hitting you in the face, you know? You know, yeah, yeah. How can you switch your brain off, like, to do that? You know, it's like. Well, you can't. I don't think you can really. Anyway, I th it's been an interesting journey thinking about um, automatic writing and automatism. Yeah. That was the that was the sales pitch of surrealism. Really, here yeah. is this thing, automatism. We discovered it. This is what I'm just parroting Breton. Really, we discovered it, and and what we think it is is. Um, Obviously, they were they were writing at a time when sort of cinema and photography was just, you know, becoming a much more dominant way of looking at reality. Yeah. But they described automatism or Breton did as um, a veritable photography of the mind. Well, it's like he 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 pitched it like that. But of course, it's not really, is it? It's it, it's it, he tried to get as unconscious a set of words together as you can, but it, it's pretty much impossible to separate these things out and obviously whatever you are writing in the middle of a pandemic is a, is going to be churning back your anxiety somehow in much yeah. the same way as your dreams do yeah. well not quite the same way but obviously with some sort of parallel you know what i mean um yeah, so yeah. 
my dream, my dreams. <laughs> Looking at those 60 dreams that I've recorded, by the way, I mean, yes, there are some that have got that kind of trauma vibe to them that comes from the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, and yet there are some entirely banal scenarios that keep repeating themselves that are nothing to do with that as well. Your mind goes to very interesting places, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas I think aut automatic writing is not quite as detached from reality as your dreams are. So when you're doing automatic writing, you are going to be churning up things from the immediate past all the time. I thought yeah. I found it very hard not to be. Um, yeah. You know. And is that mentally exhausting then? It was very, very tiring doing it, I've got to say. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd like the, to explore that with you a little bit. Like, can yeah, you tell me what it, how it felt for you mentally, like, just from a creative point of view and trying to live life, you know, in under these circumstances? Like, what, how would it feel, you know? How did, how did it feel? Um, yeah, it was... Uh, Yes, it's a it's a tiring way of doing things, and it's quite traumatizing. I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, um, I've I've read it elsewhere during the process as well. That you know, people have said, people within the surrealist movement have said, you know, it it's not kind to people. Surrealism is not a kind way of going about things, oh. and it strips you a bit. And obviously, yeah. yeah, you feel a bit immersed. Obviously, this book being about being underwater or being in the lake or jumping yeah. into a lake all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I, I did feel quite immersed and not always in a good way. Um, yeah. It's interesting to look at afterwards. I've, I've actually found the process somehow or other I'm not quite sure whether I've got a full handle on it yet, but I felt the process has been of, of some sort of use to me as a person Yeah. in um, finding a new place to look at the world from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as, a, as an actual physiological, emotional process, it's quite taxing. Yeah. So you can't switch off from it very much. You're always in the process of getting prepared to do it again. And you can't stop until it's done. Yeah. I couldn't, you know, and because I couldn't plan, I mean, when I say I couldn't plan, it's not like I didn't have a notion in my head somewhere of what I was going to be doing. But I didn't have a kind of, you know, a plot structure written and out with character arcs and the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, if anything, I was trying to create the structure by chance. So then I had to respond to chance and I had to be open to chance all the time. So things that, um, happened to happen had to be incorporated things that I read um, had to be incorporated so yeah it's like you're gathering all this kind of shell around yourself as you're going along yeah. and you don't know whether anything any of it means anything it's totally the opposite of what a PhD normally does <laughs> yeah uh, so and that was quite stressful because I knew that I had to be able to account for it in some way and find a line through it. But, and, but as a piece of writing, it was, I'd call it maximalism rather than minimalism. It's like the opposite of stripping things down. It's accreting things on top of yourself all the time. Um, yeah, very odd. And just very so that you don't, and just so that you don't feel like you're on the, on the ledge exposed by yourself. Uh, I, I, 
I similarly have felt really kind of in the mire over the last year and a half, and I've just been trying to do various bits and bobs to keep myself sane, really, and to keep myself going, you know? So so I didn't want you to share your experience and be me just go, oh, well, that's nice, you know, because <laughs> that's, you know, or that's, uh, but I, I want to share with you and tell you that it's been difficult for me also in a very different way. And I've just been trying to speak to as many people as I can, trying to get as many different opinions as I can to just try and get through it, you know and to hopefully not be too traumatised by it, but hopefully on the other side of it, you know what I mean? So I just thought that was important for me to say that to you. Oh, that's much appreciated, but I I, I know, and I I wouldn't by any means uh, want to be suggesting that my experience has been anything other than just what everybody else has been experiencing. There's some of the stuff that I've read and heard and seen through this time, it, it's, there's still a long, long way to go. I think before people will be able to process this properly. Yeah, it's a time time slot we've been alive. It's uh, unprecedented, isn't it? Yeah, and um, I think that that word has been so over, so much, so overused. It's untrue, isn't it? That word. Yeah, that yeah, word is. Yeah, it's took on a meaning in and of itself, hasn't it? Huh? Yeah, it certainly has. Yeah. Uh, so, do you, do you think uh, you'll be publishing that uh, that diary of dreams in the future? Uh, no, I'm not going to publish that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using it in the book. That's oh, that's right. what I can. That's what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to be yeah. um, interpolating it into the story in some way. Um, it one of the three writers that I, um, Ethel Colhoun. She is a British uh, artist and surrealist artist. And uh, she wrote two, well, she wrote three novels actually, but only two of them have been published. And her first one um, is pretty much a tapestry of dreams, really. It's a, she kept a dream diary all the way through her life and she spent her time earmarking dreams that she'd had for this particular novel, which is a kind of gothic, uh, mystery adventure novel uh but it, it's not really at the same time as it being that it's actually just um you're stepping off a cliff into one of her dreams every time you turn a page and uh, th- that has that kind of vertiginous sort of um uh, nightmare feel to it which uh, you know i think is one of the interesting things that surrealism can do where you you feel like you're you're in one story from home, but then you're in an entirely other one. Just like dreams can move, you know, they move from from one location to another without any announcement. And that's how David Lynch works, isn't it? And she does that. So I'm, I'm given that I'm I'm the the novels a kind of vehicle for exploring the work of these particular writers who I've read I've read all their stuff, and I'm obviously trying to contribute to an awareness of them, but not via analysing them and extracting their meaning, the meaning from their work, but sort of doing something alongside it. So I thought I would I would use the dreams 
as part of the process of completing the work. And, um, and has this given you and has this that. given you the book for novel writing? Um, I, I, it's very hard to say because I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really know uh, what writing a standard novel is like. And I guess I wouldn't want to write a novel as a practice piece for a PhD again. Mm. Um, not because I didn't think it's it was a good a good thing to do, yeah. but um, yeah. it, it doesn't really give you much of an indication of what writing a novel might be like. Yeah. To be honest with you, the most fun I've had has been, yeah, it's come out of the automatic element of it alongside, of late, the poetry that I've been writing, which in any case is partly what the novel's like. It's not a sort of prosaic novel. It's, it, it's, quite, it's quite poetic in its attempt to evoke things. So, I, I, you know, I think poetry is the, the direction, or cinema. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a good time to tell people, I wanted to share this with people about you, is that you're a prolific screen playwright, and uh, you know that's that's how I know you, and um, you know, uh, and and it always amazed me how you how you just did screen play after screen play. You've you've got like what seems like hundreds in the cupboard or where, wherever you put them. I don't know, but you are a prolific. Screenplay writer, and and uh, I wonder when you'll start doing that again. Um, I don't oh, know. At the moment, it's jury's out on on scripts. I think one of the things about this book was it was it was the idea for behind it was uh, I've, I I kind of came across the idea for the, for the book when I would have been imagining that I might try and make a film of it. But, it, it, you know, as as these things go, you realise pretty quickly that it's quite an extravagant idea and um, getting anybody to be interested in anything that isn't, like, is more than an inch to the left or right of the mainstream is almost impossible, uh, you know, to get funding for. So in that respect, writing it as a novel has been a kind of, performative experience for me that writing it as a screenplay um, it couldn't have been because it would never have been made and so uh, and that's the that's the unfortunate thing about scripts is that they don't get made no but if, if <laughs> whereas books once they're complete they're complete no no but if the money was that, there do you think it would make a fantastic film um, I think it's a novel now. I think I think it is it isn't transportable yeah. as it is into being a screenplay. That that's told me quite a lot about the difference between books and All films. That right. it doesn't it doesn't have to have the kind of three act structure. Um, it, it plays around with the idea that there might be a three act structure, but of course it doesn't have one. Yeah. It's a series of of dreams within dreams within dreams. So it doesn't it doesn't really it sets up the expectation that it will resolve something, but it doesn't. Uh, anything like that that you get in the mainstream as a script just is inviting being put immediately in the bin, in my experience. Yeah. So I don't know. 
um, I, I, I think bits of it could could turn into nice short movies, short yeah. films, but they have I, to be in kind of a, I mean, be in a kind of art house bracket straight away. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I haven't read it yet, obviously, but um, I assume it is probably fantastic and it's probably mind blowing. But uh, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see on that one. But you know, oh yeah, will you ever? As part of you, because as part of your your book, you were planning to go to France, and will you ever be making that yeah. trip? <laughs> Good question. Um, I've just managed to get some um, a, a three month extension to my funding for this PhD, yeah. and um, I had to argue that I'd not been able to do the things that were incorporated into the plan. Yeah, some of which would have been involved vi- visiting the actual locations yeah. that would have inspired some of the writing, yeah. you know, in a more surrealist, actual surrealist methodology. So that, so the, the original idea of strolling the streets of Paris or beachcombing the streets of Paris to find the, the kind of yeah. amazing objects that turn the story, that would have been part of it. Um, yeah, I'd love to go there, but when, when am I going to get out of lockdown? Yeah, um, yeah. And be but able it, to go there. But it's more so of a... Bits of it, there are bits of it set in Paris... At this, point, at this point, it'll be more of a history tour than anything, a posthumous tour rather than anything else, you know? It, it, it would, but um, it, the the idea is still possible that um, because it's become rather... It's not quite... I wouldn't call it just a novel. It's, it's a kind of... It's a document of the time, really. So yeah. um, there's an imagined version of a place and then what would be fantastic if you could see it as a kind of a text that's got these kind of historical layers is if they were, because I'd like more visuals in the, in the book. I don't want it to just be a straight novel. It's yeah. Surrealist novels, if they can be called novels, often have illustration with them and stuff anyway, yeah. would have been to be there and take photographs from particular odd perspectives and to have those as part of the narrative really. Um, and to have almost like a diaristic account of, of, of visiting this place that had had within it this kind of wonder that this this cinema that, that floated below the surface yeah. of the lake this giant glass jellyfish creature machine um but I, I it is late in the day like you say I don't, I don't really know whether any of that will get incorporated into it yeah but I did get I, an extension link on the back I, of it and doing the book has it uh, made you think about um, the role of women within surrealism? Absolutely. Um, well, that was the original premise. Uh, alongside looking at what what might surrealism have really offered to cinema, yeah. Um, the other big question was, um, what do the surrealist women that I've selected here? Uh, offer an understanding of surrealism um, that was excluded from the historical and critical accounts of it. So yeah, yeah, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the the idea of surrealism itself as a a movement was that it was a progressive movement that was anti-bourgeois and revolutionary. And yet, um, astonishingly, sort of the, the women were not necessarily by Breton, but but certainly by the historical curators of 
surrealism were kind of omitted from the account, really. So you do get a sense that they were considered to be uh, inspirations for the men, but not artists in their own right yeah. or writers in their own right. And it's only what the, the movement started out officially in 20, 1924. And it was only in the late seventies and really properly only really in the late nineties that the women that had been kind of central were being put back into the story. So yeah, that, that's quite astonishing, isn't it? And it's all right. Yeah. Um, and and it was in, it's been interesting just looking at their work, knowing that they weren't in the centre of the of the power play, dictating the idea of the movement. So that they were given more of a, a an ability to do what they wanted with it, and that I suppose is something that I noticed in their work as well. And also just just been interesting watching their their way of dealing with the image imposed on them by the men within the within the movement and subverting it. So so yeah, a lot of stuff I've learned. The three particular women that I've studied have had a really interesting, challenging time within surrealism. Um, some more than others, but what what were the three? Um, yeah, who were the three women? So the three women uh, in the in my study are um, two of them are British. So Leonora Carrington, who's probably by now the most famous of the three, yeah. um, she's going through quite a lot of documentation and coverage at the minute. Um, and the other British surrealist is Ethel Colhoun, who is probably about to get some sort of renaissance for herself because all of her art's been passed on uh, from the National Trust to the Tate in London. And they've now got a massive collection of her artwork, which I think they'll probably do once things open up. You'll probably get a big exhibition of her work coming along. And then my third is a, is a French uh, writer called Claude Carin. Um, and she's a bit older than the others and was around in the kind of early 30s and so in Paris kind of met met Breton and the rest of the crew there but they did have some crazy times so Leonora Carrington um, she's the daughter of uh, she, well, she comes from a very wealthy northern English family she was born in Chorley um, she um, at the age of 19, they had they had her earmark to go through the debutant route of you know going around high society and getting married off to somebody very rich, but she had other ideas for herself. Uh, she went, she insisted on going to an art school, and then she met the surrealist, she met Max Ernst when she was 19 and she ran away with him. She ended up in France in 1938, living in a farmhouse in Ardèche, in the Ardèche region with uh, Max Ernst when the uh, war broke out and he was incarcerated because he was German and she was left in the middle of nowhere on her own. Um, uh, he, he, he was released from there and then he was, when the, when the Nazis appeared, he was uh, interned again. And she 
fled to Spain and she had a nervous breakdown and she was um, incarcerated in a sanatorium and given cardiazole where she was declared insane temporarily. I think her dad put her in this sanatorium and um, gave her the, the, these injections were given to her and eventually she escaped from there. And she fled after all that, she was in New York briefly, and then she fled to Mexico and she lived there for the rest of her life, where she became like pretty much the principal um, artist in Mexico, unbeknown to us, <laughs> and carried on being a surrealist all of her life. Wow. So that's her, yeah. She's the most famous of the three, actually. I'm, I'm just reading a memoir written by her son about her. And, which just came out weeks ago. And my final question, I suppose, is uh, how do you think uh, your last few years living in surrealism has changed your politics? Um, or has <laughs> it had an effect? I don't think it's changed my politics, really. Okay. I think it's not changed my politics, really. Um, what I'm... What, um, I was always, always a little bit heartened by the way the Surrealists were a bit all or nothing about things. And obviously when um, when they were setting themselves up in the 20s, obviously they were, they were rejecting the kind of bourgeois society of, uh, of, of the 1910s that had led to, you know, the, the decimation of, of the youth of various populations during the First World War, um, but they obviously were, were also interested in communism. So they they were, they tried to join up with the communists in in France during the twenties and thirties. In fact, they had a massive split um, over whether or not um, that was the main purpose of being in art at all was to be revolutionary. So in that respect, I mean, I've, uh, it strengthened my conviction that. Um, art and politics can go together uh, or they, they should be considered as uh, mu not mutually exclusive but as part of so some kind of struggle to self-improvement really. Um, in terms of my own politics I think you know I'm sitting in the UK saying all of this and my politics have, have been tested enough by what's been going on here for the last yeah. decade or more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, that's generally quite positive that, that, that it showed you that both could be married up. Is there, is there anything you would like to say before we close? Um, well, it's been nice talking to you, really. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd recommend anybody to explore that period of time in in the sort of early 20th century where there seemed to be an explosion of avant-garde, uh, particularly surrealism, I think, and ask yourself questions about why that might have been and, and, and perhaps what we might need today to counter the sort of, you know, the destruction of culture that's, that's happening at the moment in the UK. Um, you know, and it definitely, trust your own dreams. And it definitely is happening here. The UK is. Is, is being destroyed system, yeah, systematically. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let that be a voice from the bunker. <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, on that on that note, I'll I'll bid everybody a goodbye for now. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, Steve. Bye.